The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm your host, also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary. In March of this year, we hosted our 2021 Spring Theology Conference focusing on the theme of the Trinity. The title for the conference was Who is God? The Trinity, the Gospel, and the Christian Life. Over the next few weeks, we want to highlight on the podcast a number of the addresses from the conference, beginning with President Emeritus and Professor of Systematic and Homiletical Theology, Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr.'s pre-conference lecture entitled Examining the Eternal Subordination of the Son. In this lecture, Dr. Piper reads 1 Corinthians 11, 1-16, before engaging in a critical examination of a doctrine which has gained some currency in conservative evangelical circles over the past 30 years or so. Proponents of the eternal subordination of the Son, or ESS doctrine, believe and teach that God the Son is eternally subordinate to God the Father. What Dr. Piper will show in this lecture is that this belief is out of accord with Scripture and historic creedal Christianity. May the Lord bless you as you tune into this important special edition of Confessing Our Hope. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 11, the first 16 verses. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But... I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels." However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. All things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. I think it was Dabney who said that uh, every age of the church needs to uh, reaffirm for itself all the truths of Scripture, and that is very important. But we also know that, as Dr. McGoldrick's book said, ancient heresy, modern cults, that uh, all the old heresies also recirculate so that we will be vigilant. But in God's providence, it also seems that in particular times in the history of the church, certain doctrines come to the fore. 
was not that many years ago that we had to go back to square one and deal with the doctrine by faith alone. Uh, more recently, the problems have to do with the relationship of uh, the Trinity to human sexuality. And this morning, we're going to look at one aspect of this relationship of uh, the Trinity to human sexuality, not dealing with the, the problem of human sexuality, but uh, the argument that is developed in order to promote what is commonly called complementarianism. In my introductory Reformed theology class, a young lady uh, was in there from California, and uh, we were in the section on the Trinity, and so she started talking to what the doctrine we're going to discuss today has done to the uh, uh, Calvinistic Baptist churches in California, and it's pretty bad. It was basically her father in his church standing alone against men with whom he had walked uh, for years in a, a commonality. So I had frankly been asleep at the wheel, as I think many of us have been. Uh, it kind of slid under the radar, uh, this matter that we're going to discuss today. And it was the conversation with her and what was going on in one particular part of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ that motivated me actually to agree to do this lecture and to address this topic as we gather this morning. Because some conservative evangelicals have asserted as subordination, not just within the economic relationships of the Trinity, but in what we refer to as the ontological Trinity, God who He is in Himself. And they're building on the First Corinthians eleven three, which I just read, and it actually has become a foundational argument for their whole uh, argument for complementarianism, the relationship of men and women in the family and in the church. That particular verse, Paul wrote, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And in that last phrase, they claim, and we'll come back to their exegesis of that, that Christ there refers to uh, the second person of the Godhead in his ontological eternal relationship as a second person of the Godhead. So, as I said, this kind of sailed under the radar for the longest time, but uh, it's apparent not only they're teaching the doctrine, it's contrary to historic Trinitarian uh, theistic uh, theism, but they also are aggressively pursuing this doctrine of theirs uh, to the point of saying that it was only been in recent times that any evangelical would have disagreed with them. The position has different names. It's called uh, eternal functional subordination. It goes by the initials EFS. Initially, it was the eternal subordination of the Son, ESS. And Ware's latest terminology is the eternal relationship authority submission, ERAS. Now, there's a lot on this, and I'm all going to do is just throw some rocks across the top of the water. If your interest is whetted, uh, a book completely opposed to the position is Trinity Without Hierarchy, Reclaiming the Nicene Orthodoxy and Evangelical Theology, uh, by, edited by Michael Byrd and Scott Herrera. An interesting book because this gives you, from their own mouths, the teachings of the EFS people, as well as 
uh, arguments against and interactions. It's quite interesting. And so this is the, the new evangelical subordinationism, question mark. And so that allows, and I tried to go back to this and some other things that we given me so that I can honestly uh, let these men speak uh, for themselves. So what I'm going to try to do in the time we have is to state, briefly to state uh, their position with some of their arguments, uh, and then seek to refute the position, and then throw out for your thinking a few uh, implications or consequences of their teaching. So the position, let's let the men speak for themselves. Primary proponents have been Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem. Uh, Dr. Ware uh, wrote, I will defend the thesis that while Scripture clearly teaches and the history of doctrine affirms that the Father and Son are fully equal in their deity as each possesses fully the identically same divine nature, yet the eternal and in a Trinitarian father-son relationship is marked, among other things, by an authority and submission structure. That's why the ERAS is developed, in which the father is eternally in authority over the son, and the son eternally in submission to the father. There is then an eternal and immutable quality of essence between the father and the son, while there is also an eternal and immutable authority submission structure that marks the relationship of the Father and the Son. So equally divine, but on the other hand, within their eternal relationship, there is a, uh, an authority structure. And the Son is, at that point, subordinate to the Father and the Spirit as well to the Father. Our, here, Dr. Grudem, who says that God the Father has the role of commanding and the Son has a role of submitting, equal in being, again, subordinate in role. And he develops a lot of this on the names of Father and Son, quoting, But if we do not have eternal subordination, there is no inherent difference in the way the three persons relate to one another. And consequently, we do not have the three distinct persons existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity. Quite a claim. For example, if the Son is not eternally subordinate to the Father in role, then the Father is not eternally Father, and the Son is not eternally Son. This would mean that the Trinity has not eternally existed. Or again, therefore, the consistent testimony of Scripture is that the Father, by virtue of being Father, eternally has authority to plan, initiate, command, and send, authority that the Son and Holy Spirit do not have. The Son, by virtue of being Son, eternally submits joyfully and with great delight to the authority of His Father. It is only in a sinful world, deeply marred by hostility toward authority and overly focused on status and power, that we fail to see that submission to authority of the Father is, in one aspect, of the great glory of the Son. Both authority and submission to authority are wonderful parts of the great glory of the Father and the Son, and will be their glory for all eternity. So basically, they assert that what we see in the economic actions and relationships of the Trinity in creation and redemption is simply the, the window for us to understand the ontological uh, relationship 
within the Trinity. So Grudem asserts authority and submission prior to creation and authority and submission after the final judgment are part of this relationship within the Trinity. Well, let me give you some of their grounds or their arguments. Uh, textually, there's three texts in particular. Now, uh, Dr. Grudem actually gives 31 uh, verses uh, text, and I'll touch on those in a bit. But the three primary texts, and where this all started, as I said earlier, is in 1 Corinthians 11, 3. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So they follow Godet in his uh, commentary on 1 Corinthians, who interprets this as a reference to the eternal relationship of father and son, not an economic relationship. Quoting where? To begin, 1 Corinthians 11.3 offers a truth claim about the relationship between the father and the son that reflects an eternal verity or truth. That God is the head of Christ is not suggested by the apostle to be an ad hoc, in other words, in his mission, relationship for Christ's mission during the Incarnation is rather stated as a standing truth regarding this relationship. God is the head of Christ, and placing this at the end of verse 3 indicates that grounding for the other two instances of headship is found in this one. The Father has authority over the Son. There's a relationship of authority and submission in the very Godhead on the basis of which the other authority submission relationships of Christ and man and man and woman depend. The taxis, or order, of God's headship over His Son accounts for the presence of taxis in man's relationship with Christ and woman's relationship with man. And it's very interesting because the little bit that I've read, it really seems that this whole um, correct desire for complementarianism, uh, developed this verse in particular as kind of the fountainhead of all that they would go on then uh, to assert. Second text in 1 Corinthians, again following Godet, 1 Corinthians 15, 4-28, uh, where they say we have here stated an eternal submission to the Father. Then comes the end where He, that's Christ, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he's abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he has accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the One who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all and all. So he assumes here that when the mediatorial, mediatorial kingdom is perfect, Christ will continue in submission to the Father as the second person of the Godhead. When it says, all things are put in subjection to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. I think that last quotation is from Grudem. And then John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own initiative, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And here they assert then that the Son has always been in submission to the will of the Father. 
not just in his mission on earth, or the completion of that mission now as the mediatorial king, but in his eternal relationship to the Father. So those are the three primary texts that you most often come across. Uh, a second set of arguments has to do with the relationship that is implied uh, by the names Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, that relationship, they say, implies subordination. Now, it's interesting, this is at least one area where they've listened to their critics and did correct their theology. They initially were denying the eternal generation of the Son and the eternal procession of the Spirit. But they now both assert that. They agree that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father and the Spirit eternally proceeds from Father and Son. But these relationships, they assert, demand an authority structure. The reason for the father and son relationship as we see it in the sphere of creation. And obviously in that relationship there is a, an authority structure. House wrote, the reason why the father is the father and the son the son relates to genuine aspects of personal subsistence that is different from the other persons. And we would agree with that. Even as they equally share the common essence of deity, we agree with that. The Son is eternally God, a very God, begotten from eternity, not created. The Son is sent to be the incarnate Savior of the world due to His position and relationship within the Trinity. The Father could not be sent by the Son due to the position He occupies within the Trinity in respect to the Son and the Holy Spirit. Consequently, the differences of the three persons are real and not merely distinguishing them for identification. But they take that difference beyond what we've our confession says the personal properties of Father, Son, and Spirit and apply it into a subordinated structure where the Father is the grand architect, the wise designer of all that has occurred in the created order, and He, not the Son or the Spirit, is specifically said to have supreme authority over all, 1 Corinthians 15, in His position and authority the Father is supreme among the persons of the Godhead as He is supreme over the whole created order. As they speak of the Son's submission to the economic work of redemption, they also deny that each person within the Godhead participates in all of the acts of the Godhead by right of their being of the same substance with one will. We'll come back to that. A third line of reasoning with them is the historical tradition. They just assert that the ancient fathers the Cappadocians, Basil, Cyril, Athanasius, Augustine, the medievals, particularly in Aquinas, and the Reformed theologians all agree with this position of an eternal subordination. I'll give you a couple of quotations. I'll return to these. Uh, J.I. Packer, thus the obedience of the God-man to the Father while he was on earth was not a new relationship occasioned by the Incarnation, but the continuation in time of the eternal relationship between the Son and the Father. Burkhoff, the only subordination of which we can speak is a subordination in respect to order and relationship. Generation and procession take place within the divine being and imply a certain subordination as to the manner of personal subsistence. Listen to these explanations because we'll come back and see they're very important as to the manner of personal subsistence, but not subordination as far as the possession of the divine essence is concerned. The 
The ontological trinity and its inherent order is the metaphysical basis of the economical trinity. Um, I think there's a couple of the quotations. Uh, one of the people they quote uh, language very much like Burkhoff is Hodge. Again, I think if you read Hodge in his context, you'll see what I must point out later. Uh, they are really misusing their, uh, their quotations. So, and then there's this bold claim by Mr. Grudem. No theologian prior to modern evangelical feminism, you see what's driving the boat, has ever said eternal submission of son to father is unorthodox, and in parenthesis, as far as I know. No creed says that the son is not eternally subject to the father, to my knowledge. Well, we'll see. Let's go then to um, some refutation of the position and uh, its arguments. We'll start with their three texts. But let me just point out, as I said, they follow Godet, and I didn't survey a whole lot of commentaries on 1 Corinthians, but I didn't find anybody that went with Mr. Godet. You know, he had some serious problems. Not only did he deny election, he also taught uh, the kenosis theory. And so he obviously had a defective view with respect to the relationship of the incarnate Son to the Father. And so he, uh, in both of these passages they use, asserts an eternal functional subordination. So the first Corinthians eleven three. I point out to you that which I think most careful readers of the Bible grasp, that the term Christ is used for uh, the incarnate Son of God. It is a title, the Greek translation of Messiah, and it refers to him as the threefold office bearer of prophet, priest, and king in his work of redemption. And particularly in Corinthians, when Paul is so careful with the various names that he uses of uh, the Godhead as well as of Jesus and Christ. Um, Paul is only talking here about Christ, the Son of God incarnate. Uh, and it's in that capacity that the Father is his head. You see, they actually make the same mistake here that, well, fact, they probably, maybe not in sound, the Jehovah's Witness make, where they take these passages and they also read them back into uh, uh, the eternal relationship. So in the New Testament, it's either a technical word for Messiah or the personal title of the Savior. In the context, I said, of Paul's writings in Corinthians, he carefully will change. And we'll see this in, in my uh, lecture tomorrow afternoon as he uses these different names uh, with respect to uh, the Godhead. Um, Joel Beakey wrote, Christ, Messianic title of Jesus. The focus here is on distinction of role or function and not that of essence. Just as the Son of God as mediator submitted himself to the will of the Father, so the wife should submit to the husband and the husband to Christ. The structure of these relationships form the basis of the argument that follows. So he clearly is interpreting this in terms of uh, God incarnate as the God-man in the state of humiliation submitting to the will of the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. In that context, the apostle is dealing with the Messiah and his kingdom in order to prove, remember the thread of the argument, the bodily resurrection. Christ reigns as mediatorial king until all, including death, is under his reign. All things obviously does not mean the triune God. Now, that's the triune God. And we 
don't have time to go into uh, Calvin's doctrine of the incarnate Savior, the Lutherans uh, labeled extra Calvinistic, uh, that God the Son was always the second person of the Godhead, acting perfectly in that wonderful communion and relationship within the Godhead. He didn't cease to be omnipresent. His personal manifestation was in his incarnate state. But essentially, he was still the second person of, of the Godhead. And so he's always functioning in, in both of these roles, so to speak. Um, so all things do not mean the triune God, but Christ's um, kingdom. At the second coming, he'll turn the kingdom over to God the Father. Again, quoting Beeky, Paul is speaking of the Son and his mediatorial role and function, not his essence, power, and glory, which are equal to the Father in terms of his uh, divine nature. Uh, Gill wrote then with respect to this passage that God may be all in all, that concluding statement that they build so much on, um, for by God is not meant the Father personally, but God essentially considered. Father, Son, and Spirit who are the one true and living God to whom all the saints will have immediate access, in whom, um, whose presence they will be, and with whom they shall have an uninterrupted fellowship without the use of such mediums as they now enjoy. All the three divine persons will have equal power and government in and over all the saints, and there will be no more acting by a delegated power or a derived authority. Christ is mediatorial king. God will be all things to all his saints immediately without use of means. And so most of the writers assert here that the word God is referring to the triune God who's all in all, not just to God the Father in relationship to God the Son. Our John 15, uh, our John 5.30, the Son is Messiah submitted to the will of the Father. Uh, think of Psalm 40. Verses 6 to 8, Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It's written of me. I delight to do your will. O my God, in your law, your law is within my heart. And Hebrews 10 uh, applies that to the obedience and atoning work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Very good comment by a gentleman named Duncan Boyd in the online Banner of Truth, January 17, 2018. In respect of the issue of will, and that's what they're at here, will, this must be a reference to Jesus' incarnate human will. Jesus is incarnate and speaks as the second Adam. He obeys on our behalf as Adam did, and he resists temptation as Adam did not. This is precisely why the human obedience of Christ is so important. His human will differs from the divine will, and can be tempted, but never yields to temptation. This is why he is our perfect Redeemer and the head of a new redeemed humanity. His perfect obedience is imputed to all who repent and believe. In respect of the sending of this is part of Jesus' role in the covenant of redemption, which has no implications for the issue of will. In eternity, there was an agreement between the three members of the Trinity to redeem fallen mankind. This was an expression of the one divine will. But the functions of the different persons of the Trinity differ in this covenant. The Father wills to send, but the Son wills to be sent. This is not an example of the divine Son's submission to the will of the Father. Rather, it's an example of the Son's assumption of a role necessitated 
by divine agreement. And you can easily go consult the commentaries on all three of these passages and see that their interpretation is uh, quite uh, naive and eccentric. A second thing that I would uh, bring against them is the failure to grasp the significance of the personal properties in the Godhead. There is order in person and operation. That's why the Father is first, the Son second, and the Spirit is third. That's why the Father initiates, decrees, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit completes. But in that order, there's no submission of will. God is a simple being with one will. Moreover, even though works ascribed to one person in particular, all are involved in every single work of the Godhead. For example, in Timothy, Paul calls God Savior, or the Father. Um, and Christ was raised by the Father, by Himself, and by the Holy Spirit. So Dr. Smith, who wrote long before this was ever an issue, <laughs> uh, there is an order in the mode of subsistence of the three persons which cannot be reversed, and properties that cannot be interchanged, and order of relationship. This is not to be construed as subordination. However, these distinctions between the persons are not distinctions of essence, but of person. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. The essence of God involved infinite, eternal, and unchangeable being and perfection. The fact that we recognize each of these persons as deity implies that there can be no subordination of essence. Now, they're not saying the subordination of essence, but they're just right next door to that. Another man who was quite prescient, wrote Ray before any of this came up, was the Scots theologian Dick. He said, The Father is called the first person, the Son the second, and the Holy Ghost the third. This is the order of their subsistence, and it's pointed out by their internal relations. But beware of thinking that it implies the priority of one to another in time, but in dignity. It's dangerous to speak of a subordination among the persons of the Trinity. And it is almost impossible to avoid the idea of inferiority in the subordinate persons. It seems also absurd, while we admit at the same time that the persons equally possess the divine nature and perfections, what puzzles me most of all is to perceive how subordination is necessary to preserve the unity of God. Because it should seem to me, remember that's something that Grudem asserted, that you lose the Godhead if you don't have this subordinated uh, relationship. It seemed to me that nothing was so calculated to make us doubt the unity as subordination of any kind, and that it is more easily conceived if all the persons are equal in every respect. Um, moreover, they cannot fully, um, we may not fully accurately define the Trinity by what we see in economic relationships or even in relationships uh, in the creation. Again, Dick, although the terms father and son indicate a relation analogous to that among men, yet as in the latter case, it's a relation between two material and separate beings, and in the former, a relation in the same spiritual essence, the one can throw no light upon the other. And to attempt to illustrate the one by the other is equally illogical, and presumptuous. And yet this is a big part of their argumentation that just that these terms were chosen. And see, initially they, they denied the, the uh, internal uh, relationship of, of Father, 
begetting Son and Father, Spirit proceeding from them. And, and, and maintain that uh, it was almost that these, well, you could say the names were arbitrary. And because of that, was, God was saying, well, pay attention now. You know what human relationships are like. And the Father's authority over a son and loving son's submission to the Father. And what Dick is pointing out here is that it's just impossible to argue from a created a material structure to uh, a full grasp of what is meant by uh, the titles of Father and Son. Dick points out that the ontological trinity would have existed in these personal relations if God had done no works ad extra. In other words, he never created, never redeemed. He still would have been Father, Son, and Spirit. He did not need the economic relationship to in any way define, because God needs nothing, any way to define who he is. And thus we ought not to seek to interpret or define the ontological trinity by the actions of the economic trinity, the Father and the Son. Professor Murray has an excellent section here in a book review in volume four. I'll start with his second point. Uh, second, economic relations are certainly consonant with the imminent and eternal relations. In other words, there's an agreement of harmony in that they conform to the eternal relations. They are not inherently necessary expressions of the imminent relations, but positing the sovereign good pleasure of God in the decrees of creation and redemption. But God didn't have to do it that way. The economic relations are congress with and appropriate expressions of the imminent relation. So they're in complete harmony with it, and they are proper expressions of it to a degree. Third, he says, it's in the econ economies of creation and redemption, specifically in the redemptive economy, that the revelation of the imminent Trinitarian relations is given to us. It cannot be otherwise, for it is in the economy of creation we exist as creatures, and it's in terms of the economy of redemption that we exist as believers. But finally, and here's now he brings it together, it's an entirely different proposition to aver that the doctrine of the imminent trinity must conform exactly in content to the economic trinity, and that God's whole essence is revealed to us in his operations. It is symptomatic of what is one of the most perplexing features of Bardian theology. While on the one hand there is the insistence on the distinction between the imminent trinity and the economic trinity, and on the eternal antecedents of the former. Yet on the other hand, there are also terms which are tantamount to identification and equation. And uh, one of theologian, uh, Rahner, has developed the whole procedure, the way you know the in eternal ontological trinity is only through the economic trinity. The trinity, in other words, is set forth to such an extent in the economic manifestation operation that one is never sure whether it is the doctrine Therefore, the Trinity. Now, he's referring to what uh, this man has written. While, of course, the knowledge we have of the triune God, and therefore of his triunity, comes through economic revelation, manifestation, and operation, yet our doctrine of the Trinity is not a doctrine of the Trinity at all if it is construed in terms of economic manifestations and operations. Read that again. Our doctrine of the uh, Trinity is not a doctrine of the Trinity at all if it's construed, worked out of, in terms of the economic manifestations 
and operations. Our doctrine of the Trinity, Marie continued, must be that of what God is in and of himself eminently and eternally, irrespective of creation and redemption. If our Trinity is not that, then the God whom we conceive of is not the eternal, self-existent, and self-sufficient God, but a God whom temporarily is an attribute. Then their historical arguments, which they said everybody agrees with them up until modern evangelicals. It's quite clear from the writings of Athanasius and Augustine of the Cappadocians, um, those who held the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, held to a complete ontological equality with no functional subordination. It's merely not true to assert that they found this in those writers. They misunderstand. Let me just give you the example of the Athanasian Creed. Whosoever will be saved before all things, it's necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. And that's not the our Catholic faith, the universal church, orthodox church. Which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit is all. The glory and majesty equal, co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such as the Son, such as the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also there are not three incomprehensibles, nor three uncreated, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is almighty. It's an important term. The Son almighty and the Holy Spirit almighty. Yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Spirit Lord. Not three lords, but one Lord. For as we are compelled by Christian verity to acknowledge each person by himself to be both God and Lord. So we are forbidden by the Catholic religion to say that there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son of the Father alone, not made nor created nor begotten. The Holy Spirit of the Father, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there are one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three. And in the Trinity, none is before, here we've got relationships, or after another. None is greater or less than another. But all three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal. See, equality would have to do with relationships. So that in all things, as is foresaid, unity in the Trinity, Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved must think thus of the Trinity. Now, the many other writers if they simply had consulted the Reformed Scholastics, um, it's quite evident that these men anticipated these difficulties, spoke again. Let me give you one summary. Um, Jeff Fisher wrote that the Protestant scholastic theologians consistently maintained the uniqueness of the eternal Father-Son relationship within the Trinity. In particular, they sought to qualify and clarify nearly every instance of every potential instance where the charge of the Son's subordination to the Father could arise. They upheld the historical orthodox distinctions between the persons of the Trinity, including the eternal generation of the Son. They developed the explanation that for the Son to be 
homusion, the same as the Father. He must be autotheon, the God of himself. And therefore, in the eternal generation of the Son as person, the divine essence is communicated to the Son. The purpose for this clarification was to avoid and resist any implication that the Son and his divine nature is inferior or subordinate to the Father. Rather, they continually reiterated that the Son was only operationally subordinate. It was as the incarnate Redeemer. With respect to the theologians they quoted, they're simply using the term subordination acronistically. Yes, they used the word to talk about this order of Father, Son, and Spirit. And it is also an operational order then, as the Trinity uh, works out His holy purposes in creation and redemption. But you read most of the men in context, and they're going to say something to the effect, in their ordered relationship is what they mean by... They wouldn't use that term today, I think. Another argument is it fails to give due emphasis to the one will of God, that although the members have distinct roles, each person is always active in each work. Gill, whatever distinguishes them cannot uh, be done by them in time, since their distinction is from eternity. And besides, works of God at extra, or as external works, are common to all three persons. For though one may be more commonly ascribed to one person and another to another, yet the three persons have not distinguished them one from the other. And you see this. Uh, Perkins has a great thing, and he was one of the first really to develop this, that uh, God the Son participated in election, and he was act as the uh, uh, Son who was to be sent. Well, there's many more things about that. Uh, this gets into the problem of the will. So Grudem will say, well, one will, but it has uh, three um, different ex distinctive expressions is the word that he uses. But you do that, you say that, you're doing away. Gills wrote, or Giles, then we have the problem of three wills. If the Son must obey the Father and the Spirit must obey the Father and the Son, this implies each divine person has their own will. For all eternity, the Son must submit to the will of the Father and the Spirit, His will to the Father and the Son. It's really the era of tritheism. Again, each person is completely involved in all the works of the Godhead. Another argument is it fails to see the role of the eternal transaction in that which we call either the covenant of redemption or the eternal aspect, the covenant of grace, or the council of peace, whatever you want to call it. Uh, these were the three members of the Godhead together plan the redemption. They don't see that. And there's a basic problem of how Grudem reads or interprets Scripture. He posits 31 passages of Scripture. Includes at least 31 verses teach the authority of the Father and the submission of the Son prior to Christ's earthly ministry after He returned to heaven. Now, all but about four of those all have to do with the time that Christ is on the earth. Have nothing to do about uh, any prior uh, relationship. But his hermeneutic is faulty. It is simply uh, proof texting, and none of which demonstrates the eternal submission of the Father to the Son. Gal said the Bible is to be read canonically, holistically, on the premise that the overall teaching of Scripture must determine and inform the meaning of individual text. The Old Testament must be read in light of the New. Historical meaning of any biblical text does not exhaust its meaning. And then, this is important, the best guide to a right interpretation in relation to any historically developed doctrine is the theological tradition, especially as it's summed up in the creeds and confessions. Bob Link was big on this. So a truth confessed by the church is not a dogma because the church recognizes it, but solely because it rests on God's authority. Still, having made this point, 
we must add that the confession of the church supplies us with excellent, though not infallible, means to find our way amid many and varied errors to the truth of God's laid down word. So, to pull these verses out by any attention, either to the context or to any principle of interpretation, such how is the Bible used the name Christ, or to um, what the creeds and confessions of the church have said. It's a great summary of the personal relationships in Westminster Confession 2.3 that I won't read right now, but quickly some consequences. At this point, it seems not to be a soul-damning heresy, as some opponents have declared, but it is, it's a heresy. And you're only going to teeter-totter for a bit between a soul-damning heresy and a heresy. It does damage to the historic doctrine of the Trinity. You'll have to work these out for yourself. In worship, the Son has an inferior glory. This will harm the triune praise of God, detracts from the worship of God to the Son. And further devolution, it is going to affect other doctrines. As Bavink again says that every truth in the Bible is related to the Trinity. So if you've got a wrong doctrine of the Trinity, it's going to affect. There is a true slippery slope domino effect. Implicitly, they deny that God is His attributes. How can the Son be infinite if He has any relational inferiority? Uh, what is the fullness of the Godhead that dwells in Christ? Now, they claim authority is not an attribute, but is not Almighty an attribute? Does not Almighty include authority? Ushers asserts that it does in his theology. And then it fails to give the due emphasis to the one will of God, that all members have distinct roles. Each person is always active in each work. Whatever distinguishes them cannot be done by them in time, since the distinction is from eternity. And besides, works of God at extra or as external are common to all three persons. And then actually, it does damage to complementarianism. Uh, it has created now another serious problem in the church, and that is when Amy Byrd begins to go after complementarianism, she rightly points out that many of their arguments are based on a faulty doctrine of the Trinity. Now, that simply gives her space to develop her faulty doctrine with respect to uh, man and women relationships in the family and in the church. But that's what's happening. So this thing they tried to build, when Scripture clearly teaches to the God-ordained relationships in Genesis 2 and in 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, uh, 1 Timothy 2. You know, it's, it's there. And we need to build our theology again a careful exegesis of Scripture. And then it's not a consequence as much as a warning to us, and that is we all need to be much more familiar with the early fathers, the Cappadocian writers, Cyril and Ambrose, and Augustine's work on the Trinity, and Athanasius, and, and the Reformed scholastics. And we need to immerse ourselves in the great uh, theological tradition of the church and the confessions of the church. Understood then, uh, is it explained by the men who submitted to, to those confessions? So we have work to do as well, and this, I think, teaches us of our need to, um, to do work, not to be lazy, and to stay alert. I think one of the reasons this era developed as it did is because, well, 
know, for the most part, Grudem was fairly trustworthy. And we liked some of the things that uh, biblical manhood and womanhood were standing for. And so we just did not pay attention. We're all sinners. We don't trust men. We must take what anyone says back to the one infallible testing place, and that is the Word of God. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for uh, this quick survey that you've allowed us to have uh, through a very dangerous error, Lord. We ask that we'll be alert, that we'll stand against it, that we will do what we can to interact with those who are being deceived by this, and that you will protect your church and bring your church back to a clear, articulate confession of a full and equal relationship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We'll make our way now, Lord, to Woodruff Road, where you keep us safe, and that you will indeed bless us in this conference where we have such a grand privilege to uh, unpack biblically this doctrine of the Trinity. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and Confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.